Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. In this series of talks, this is the 18th, we started with the idea of Buddhism as self help, basically, the idea that my Buddhist practice will help me get through the day in a highly competitive, harsh, cold, and unsympathetic world. Usually what is meant by Buddhism in the modern culture is meditation. I conceded off the bat that this will help do that. But then I proceeded to question if that is what we want of Buddhist practice. It was not designed with that in mind. We went on to analyze what the self is in self-help both the understanding of self in modern Western culture and the Buddhist understanding of self, or rather non-self. We saw that the modern understanding has a history that is tied in with the European religious, intellectual, and social, and psychological, spiritual ideology that resulted in an individual self with a rather prominent role probably reaching its height in American hyper-individualism. All that is good is within our true selves, our creativity, our ethical sense, our spirituality, our rationality. All that is problematic is outside ourselves, in society with its rules, regulations, and norms. However, individualism is based on questionable metaphysical assumptions with a big dose of cynicism about society. The height of this way of thinking is certainly neoliberalism, in which individuals become competitive, greedy entrepreneurs who take complete individual responsibility for their own well-being but are brought into cooperation through the omniscient free market. It's largely in terms of the role of Buddhism in the system that Buddhism has been called the hegemonic ideology of global capitalism. Not many people understand neoliberalism and its influence on our lives and even our ways of thinking. An excellent book on this is called Neoliberalism by Julie Wilson. Her perspective is very helpful because she looks at the cultural consequences as well as economic. She is a professor of communication. Finally, we turn to modern science, to sociology and evolutionary theory to see what they have to say about these matters. Just what are society and culture, and what is their function? The Durkheim School of Sociology has had a lot of insights for over 100 years. Evolutionary theory has only recently, like within the last two decades, gotten on board. Before that, few evolutionists 
would pay heed to group selection. They were totally fixated on individual competition and selection. The newer trends completely flip how we look at the individual and society upside down. Do we really need to know all this to practice Buddhism? In principle, not. At at the time of the Buddha, not. It is just that our thinking in the West has taken us far away from an understanding of what it is to be human. And Buddhist practice is intended to be rooted in the experience of being human. Since, aside from the free market, nothing is as sacred in the West as science, and science is finally finding a way to lead us back to an understanding of what it is to be human, for many of us, like me, it will be helpful to follow its lead in this case. What we find in multi-level group selection theory is a model by which humans have undergone a period of rapid evolutionary development roughly 400,000 years ago in the form primarily of behavioral adaptations alongside some physical adaptations such as changes in our vocal apparatus with the result of turning us into highly social, highly cooperative creatures. This was natural selection at the group level. A cooperative group can always outcompete a group of selfish individuals. This gave us our social competitive nature, but also built on the tribalism of apes. Apes are minimally social. They cooperate in simple ways. But it's been pointed out, no one has ever seen two chimps carrying a log together. Chimps, our closest relative, are violently tribal and individually quite self-centered. Within a short period, our brains grew threefold. As a working assumption, we might assume that one-third of our brains is the self-serving ape in us that we started out with, and two-thirds are the social cooperative humans we've become. We can already get a sense that modern individualism and neoliberalism favor the ape, Buddhism the human. In fact, the highest ideal of Buddhism in these terms might be defined as abandoning the ape in us altogether including the tribalism. So we have undergone one evolutionary behavioral adaptation after another in the direction of cooperative behavior and its basis in interpersonal communication. Human language is probably the pinnacle of success in this area, virtually entirely symbolic, highly nuanced, communally shared and developed, and remarkably dependent on an intersubjectively maintained common ground of intentionality, basically of mind-reading each other's knowledge, interests, goals, current state of attention, values, conventions, norms, institutions, abstract conceptualizations, procedures, and encodings. 
the sacred, myth, ritual, and group identity arise as part of this symbolic system of inner subjective communication. And so social cognition is born. What is intersubjective becomes objective reality, the view from no particular individual perspective. Objective reality can also be extremely abstract, often entirely symbolic, yet is considered real. What is remarkable is that we can make up what is real on our own. Money is a symbolic abstraction, entirely a social construct, as is football and fictional literature. God is arguably another example. Simply uttering, I declare this land from shore to shore to be Quisylvanian territory, makes it so. And even more remarkably, our made-up symbolic reality can have profound coordinating effects on our practical physical behavior in the world. And in fact, that's what it's for. This realization flipped upside down not only the question of who is to blame, the individual or the society, but also the question of science versus religion or myth to account for the symbolic order which people did not understand Ancient people presumed gods and cosmic forces that held that order in place. This is basically what they did to account for physical order as well. Science actually just continued this project, born out of the view that a rational god invented the order, but science became highly selective in terms of what hidden forces to presume were behind it. Now it turns out that humans invented the gods and cosmic forces in order to hold that order in place, in order to live the serious life. Behavioral evolutionary adaptations are marked by targeted emotional responses. That is, we do not often understand why we do things in terms of the logic of evolutionary fitness. That has all been pre-calculated in our evolutionary past. Instead, emotional urges arise. Physical attraction, jealousy, anger, self-righteousness, disgust, and we act accordingly. For apes, individualists, and neoliberals, our motivational structure centers around the mundane pain and pleasure-reward system. We are mostly greedy, pleasure-seeking creatures. But we learn that our hedonic set point limits how much satisfaction we ever attain on this basis. This is reflected in the Buddha's observations as well. However, the huge evolutionary changes towards social and cooperative behaviors have entailed a radically different set of motivational drives. We actually live the serious life on a different basis, and if we choose an entirely different basis. We are motivated by things like team spirit, solidarity, dedication, 
devotion, empathy, or a sense of what is right. We sacrifice our own well-being for others. We give ourselves over to a group effort or to the sacred or to some other aspect of our symbolically constituted world that we find meaningful. Notice that all of these drives can be characterized as selfless. This has been a point of interest for me. Recall that I puzzled about the great supramundane, lokuttara, joy and delight that the Buddha speaks of, and that comes from continuous practice of what is skillful, namely renunciation, kindness, and wisdom, and how virtue trends toward the serenity and exalted states that form the basis of our meditation practice, for instance. The Buddha tells us that this supramundane experience is greater than mere sensual pleasures. In evolutionary terms, where do these supramundane states come from, and why are they so tied in with virtuous behavior? Notice that the whole question of karmic fruits is tied in with this. Wholesome or unwholesome behavior comes back to us as positive or negative personal experiences. Here we have a ready explanation in terms of evolutionary theory. The distinction between mundane and supramundane experience lies, it seems, in social rather than individual cognition, which gives us an alternative set of motivations and actually a different way of being in the world, one based in selflessness and cooperation rather than in individual self-interest. Selflessness is or can become a state in which we dwell serene, contented, and happy because we let go of personal striving, which is what apes do in favor of cooperation, which is what humans do when we're not acting like apes. Moreover, at the group level, having selfless people among us is even more productive in satisfying material needs than having self-motivated individualists. In connection with spirituality, we often talk about meaning, as in the meaning of life. Many people have deeply meaningful lives in one way or another. Religiously devout people, probably more than most. Einstein said, I believe, that scientists are among the most religious people in the world. Scientists form a highly disciplined moral community, variegated into many moral subcommunities, and although exhibiting their share of competitiveness and disharmony, at least a substantial number of them find their deepest meaning in a symbolically constituted project, carried forth and evolving over centuries, much greater than themselves, to the advancement of which they devote much time and energy selflessly. I think that all meaning in that sense is found in the symbolic space of social cognition, not in mundane individual cognition. 
I mentioned last week the psychologist Viktor Frankl, who, as a resident of a concentration camp himself, discovered the correlation of survival and the level of meaning in people's lives. After the war, he went on to found a school of psychoanalysis called Logotherapy, Logo for Meaning, which treated individual psychosis as an absence of higher meaning in one's life. Johann Hari's recent book on depression, Lost Connections, might also be seen in this light. We have lost our social connections, hardly surprising since we're so cynical about them, and suffer profoundly as a result. What is the meaning of life for Buddhists? I think for many religious people, it might be something like to serve God. This is nice because it defines meaning in symbolic, selfless terms, and it encourages devotion. But I used to wonder, what is the Buddhist answer to this question? I was at first disappointed when Shuhaku Okamura in a talk once stated that in Buddhism, you have to find your own meaning. I think I now realize what he was talking about. Buddhism does not give us an ultimate meaning in terms of any certain role within the symbolic world. Instead, it deconstructs the self, the thing-self ontologically, and the ego-self ethically, and through a deep understanding of how it gets us into trouble. Once that self is gone or significantly weakened, we find meaning wherever we go in the symbolic world and can approach any role with selfless devotion fluidly. This is why Buddhism requires no god to orient us, only the very human Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. One of the most challenging teachings of the Buddha concerns karma. Karma is intentional action in Buddhism. Wholesome actions produce positive experiences, unwholesome the opposite. However, the Buddha also made the remarkable claim that awakened ones produce no karma. They perform no intentional action and yet they appear to do things. We see that in terms of the symbolic world, this seems to make sense. Their motivations are a matter of devotion or a sense of what is the right thing to do in the symbolic world. It's completely independent of the mundane reward system of pain and pleasure. And in that sense, the Buddha made no karma. In the foregoing, it may seem that I am representing society and culture as something pristine and good, although what is most meaningful and worth pursuing is found in its symbolic structures. Today's societies are so complex, an amalgam of tribal interests, individual interests, individual dedication to overarching social efforts like scientific understanding or peace and equality, along with manipulation of social structures for personal gain, co-option, 
coercion and deceit. Much of what we hold to be most sacred can be very divisive. Apes and humans are all jumbled up in our society. It's a fraught world, difficult to navigate, yet we must find our way in that world. Buddhism provides us with the tools to do that. Consider the foundational values of renunciation, kindness, and wisdom. We renounce the ape in us in all self-serving interests. We direct our kindness to all our actions with regard to all people of all tribes and all living beings. Wisdom is to take what is of benefit seriously, but hold it lightly to realize that in the end, it is all made up. These are ideals, endpoints that we develop only slowly, but Buddhism always points in this direction toward the serious life. I don't know if many of you know it, but all the major religions are on the rise worldwide with one exception. That exception is Buddhism. In a world where so much culture is being co-opted in the interests of global capitalism, this is evidence that Buddhism contradicts the hegemonic basis of global capitalism. This is why the world needs Buddhism.